President Biden is the first U.S. leader in modern history to visit an active war zone without American troops on the ground. The lead starts right now. President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine just days ahead of the anniversary of the Russian invasion. How did the White House pull it off? Plus, the new promise the president is making while some Republicans chastise him for going. Russian families on the run from the brutal war ending up at the U.S. southern border. What one family went through to escape and the murder of a Catholic bishop known as a peacemaker with a heart for the poor found dead in his California home. The neat new details just coming in this case. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman in for Jake Tapper and we start today in our world lead. Moments ago, President Biden arrived back in Poland after his unannounced trip to Ukraine earlier today. The president visited the country's capital of Kiev and stood side by side with Ukrainian President Zelensky, where Biden declared Putin's war of conquest is failing as the war nears its one year mark. Now, it is unprecedented in modern history for a U.S. president to visit an active war zone without U.S. troops present. But Biden said his trip was important to reaffirm unwavering U.S. support for Ukraine. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. As part of the trip, President Biden announced another nearly half billion dollars in new assistance for Ukraine, including more military equipment. He also said more sanctions will be imposed on Moscow later this week. Let's start our covers this afternoon with CNN's Phil Mattingly in the Polish capital, Warsaw, on the significance of this dramatic visit. For President Biden, a dramatic moment, months in the making. One year later, Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands. To mark the resilience of a nation and U.S. support after more than 361 treacherous and deadly days of war. The first U.S. president to travel to a war zone where U.S. troops were not deployed and did not control the airspace. The acute risks punctuated as the two leaders walked on the streets of Kyiv. I thought it was critical that there not be any doubt, none whatsoever, about U.S. support for Ukraine in their war against the brutal attack by Russia. Coming after 24 hours of closely held secrecy that followed intensive security precautions, Biden had quietly pressed advisors for a trip to war-torn Ukraine for months, sources said, only to be rebuffed due to security concerns. They will not let me, understandably, I guess it, cross the border and take a look at what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine. That changed late last year as he looked to the one-year mark of Russia's invasion, tasking a small group of White House, Pentagon, and Secret Service officials to put together a trip with no historic precedent. The president ultimately decided it was a calculated risk and one that he was prepared to take. Departing in the cover of darkness at 4.15 a.m. on Sunday morning, accompanied by just a handful of advisors, two reporters on the trip were required to turn over their electronic devices. He flew to Poland, where he boarded a train for the roughly 10-hour trip to Kiev. U.S. air assets deployed at the Poland-Ukraine border to keep watch, officials said. We did send a notification to the Russians several hours before the president left, primarily for deconfliction purposes. Putin. And while the Russian response was not characterized, Biden's message to Russian President Vladimir Putin, unequivocal. Putin thought Ukraine was weak 
and the West was divided. But he's just been plain wrong. Biden arrived in Kyiv at 8 a.m. local time, the massive convoy setting off a stream of social media chatter in a city that had been completely locked down without explanation. 30 minutes later, he stepped out of a white SUV to greet President Zelensky and the Ukrainian First Lady. Biden pledged another $500 million in assistance as Zelensky again raised the issue of more advanced weapons systems the U.S. has not yet agreed to send. We've also talked about long-range weapons and the weapons that may still be supplied to Ukraine, even though it wasn't supplied uh, before. For two leaders, critical decisions to come, but one unmistakable message to the world. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. John, the president is on his way to Warsaw now, where he's expected to give a speech that was supposed to be the centerpiece of the trip before we knew he was headed to Kiev. That'll be a critical speech from the president, not just because of the message he wants to lay out to the public here in Poland, but also to the entire world, but also because it will follow. An address by President Vladimir Putin, a highly anticipated address just a few hours before in Moscow. John? Yeah, those side-by-side speeches, almost side-by-side, will be fascinating to watch. Phil Mattingly in Warsaw, thank you so much for that report. I want to go now to CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward, who is in Kiev. Clarissa, so how is this visit, the president's unprecedented visit, playing among Ukrainians? I think it's been overwhelmingly positive, the response that we've seen so far. You saw a lot of uh, local Kiev residents pouring into the square behind me where you saw President Biden walking around with President Zelensky. They were posing for photographs. I spoke to one woman who said, wow, it's amazing. The big boss came to town. And I think there's a genuine hope that this is an important signal uh, that the U.S. is going to continue to stand in lockstep with the Ukraine. Ukrainian people at a really very challenging moment in this war. Take a listen to what a couple of residents had to say. It's good news because the world will uh, hear about Ukraine and don't forget that we have a war and uh, we suffer in different uh, difficult time here. It is support for us and a message for the Russian that this issue must be resolved and Ukraine must win. We hope that this visit will speed up the events. And this is something you heard a lot as well, John. We hope that this will speed things up a little bit, talking predominantly about weaponry, particularly some of the heavier weaponry that Ukraine has been asking for consistently, which the U.S. has not indicated it is yet willing to comply with, John. And on just that point, Clarissa, there's symbolism and then there's stuff. And Ukrainians, they want stuff, particularly now, F-16 fighter jets. So does this trip by President Biden give Zelensky more hope that maybe those F-16s could be coming? Well, there's nothing that we've heard from the White House that would indicate that that is uh, sort of forthcoming. But we did hear President Zelensky say earlier that this conversation had brought Ukraine one step closer to victory. Then we also heard uh, from the chief of staff of the office of the presidency, Andriy Yermak. Uh, He said, quote, that uh, a lot of issues are being resolved and those that were stuck are being sped up. It's not clear if that's a a reference to fighter jets, long range artillery 
is another thing they want. We know that the Brits had talked about potentially supplying fighter jets or at least starting the process of training uh, Ukrainian pilots up on some of these fighter jets. But they later went back and qualified that by saying it could take years. And, and that is the vital factor in all of this, John. It takes a long time. And that's, you know, sadly, the Ukrainians are not in a position right now where they have a long time. They need that weaponry, they say now, in order to try to gain more momentum on the battlefield. Yeah, in some cases they need it yesterday. Clarissa Ward in Kiev, great to see you. Thank you so much. With me now is Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. He is the ranking member on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thank you so much. You heard Phil Manning report on the security risks surrounding this trip, this unprecedented trip by President Biden to Ukraine. Why do you think the trip was worth it? I think it's important because he was letting the Ukrainian people know that the United States and our support for Ukraine uh, will continue along with our allies. Now, I know that trip very well. Having done the same trip, uh, one of the first members of Congress with then Speaker Nancy Pelosi to travel to make that same trip that he did, uh, because it's important uh, to make sure that the Ukrainian people in the world know and Vladimir Putin know that we are together in this and we will not stop until until, uh, Putin uh, begins to pull back and stop his uh, his uh, reckless and I think criminal uh, actions in Ukraine. Now, CNN is reporting that this trip is causing fury in, in Russia's pro-military circles. It's sort of seen as upstaging Putin on the eve of a major address he is set to give. Should the U.S. be worried about possible backlash from Russia? No, we're not worried about that with, with Russia. You know, I think that uh, what needs to happen is the United States, uh, led by uh, President uh, Biden, uh, and our allies are standing up. No one thought, particularly Putin, that the world would stay unified. You know, I think that it's time that uh, Joe Biden received the credit that is due. We are where we are now is because he has led. He has not led by America going along. He has led by making sure he kept all of our allies together and that Ukraine is getting the resources that it needs. And we continue to intensif- intensify and add in. You know, we're making sure, like, for example, I'm proud that uh, and applaud the additional artillery ammunition that the president has pledged and the anti-armor systems uh, that Ukraine is using so effectively on the battlefield and the air surveillance radars, which are extremely important. So we continue to move collectively together. That is that we're doing it together with our allies. It's not the United States. And I'm tired of hearing some people in the United States should do this by themselves. We would not be where we are today if President Joseph Biden had not worked together to lead a real coalition of our allies together. Look, you mentioned some criticism. And today, several House Republicans criticized the president for this trip. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, Today on our President's Day, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, chose Ukraine over America. Uh, Congressman Scott Perry wrote, Breathtaking that President Biden can show up in Ukraine to ensure Their border is secure, but can't do the same for America. Congressman Greg Murphy wrote, so it takes two years for Joe Biden to visit the war zone he created at our southern border, but then he goes to see another war zone he created in Ukraine. What do you say to these members, your colleagues? Those are mega extremists who has basically held hostage to a large degree the Speaker of the United States Congress. And it's, it's and Speaker McCarthy, it's his job 
to rein in his folks because overwhelmingly the American people understand how significant and important of us standing and continue to fund and give the weapons that are necessary to the Ukrainian people so that they can win, so that the invasion of one's sovereign, pro uh, sovereign property, sovereign country, like what Putin has done, does not continue. Uh, and democracy thrives and lives. So I think that Speaker McCarthy needs to get his extremists in order. The American people, by and large, our allies around the world, we are all together. It is the extreme Republicans that seem to be out of step with the, where the rest of the world is. Yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the United States is concerned that China is considering providing, and this is what he said, quote, lethal support to Russia. So if China did do that, how do you think the Biden administration should respond? Well, there will be severe consequences. There's no question about that. And those plans uh, have been talked about. Uh, clearly, we're not going to indicate what those plans are so that China knows what they are. But I will tell you that it's significant and important, again, in the way the president has led here, because we've also worked closely with our allies in that region. And it would seem to me that what we would do is to make sure in the way that you continue to punish China is to make sure that the rest of the world is together. So China has no other place to no, nowhere else to go. Uh, and so, you know, there's another trip that I made along with uh, former Speaker Pelosi to that region. Uh, where we met with the South Koreans and the Japanese and the Malaysians uh, and those in Singapore, all of who are next door to China. And if we are all working together in the same way that we're doing in Europe, uh, then I think that China and their economy will have extreme consequences. And that is the way that and the appropriate way for us to, to, to operate in multilateral um, scenarios, working and leading a real a delegation of nations together so that those oppressive nations, those authoritarian countries uh, will not prevail, but those that are democratic, uh, that believes in democracy, that we stand together. And then I think that you'll see that the good democracy will stand over authoritarianism. Congressman Gregory Meeks, ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Next, how Biden's trip to Ukraine is being received in Russia. CNN is in Moscow and will have that reaction. Also ahead, the results coming in from air and water quality tests after that train derailment in Ohio. Can the outcome ease growing health concerns? A warning from pediatricians to parents who may be quick to give their children medication for a fever. Back now with our world lead, President Biden's unannounced trip to Ukraine is not going over well with certain circles inside Russia. Pro-military bloggers and journalists are angry and embarrassed, criticizing the Kremlin for not being able to stop the visit. This piles more pressure onto Russian President Vladimir Putin, who will try to justify his actions in a national address tomorrow. CNN's Fred Blyken is in Moscow. Fred, give us more of a sense of how Russia is reacting to President Biden's visit. Hmm. Yeah. Hi there, John. And you're right. I mean, these military bloggers, the hardline military bloggers, they have become really prominent uh, as this war has been going on. And you're absolutely right. There are some who are saying that this was an embarrassment for Vladimir Putin that showed weakness on the part of Vladimir Putin, that the U.S. president can essentially go into a place 
where the Russians say they can strike at will and just meet President Volodymyr Zelensky on the ground there in Kiev. But there's also a lot of other Russian politicians and people in Russian media who are saying that essentially because of the fact that the U.S. itself has said that they notified the Russians before President Biden came there to avoid any miscalculations, as the U.S. said, that it shows that essentially Vladimir Putin allowed President Biden to come there. One of the people who said that is the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is still also deputy head of Russia's Security Council. I want to read you some of what he said. This is a quote. Biden, having received security guarantees in advance, finally went to Kiev. And here it is important to note that the West already delivers weapons and money to Kiev quite regularly in huge quantities, allowing the military industrial complex of NATO countries to earn money and steal weapons to sell to terrorists around the world. Dmitry Medvedev, who has, you know, become pretty hardline himself uh, uh, over the past couple of months. However, this is one of the narratives really that we've been seeing the Kremlin push, where essentially they are trying to portray all this as something where they say they're not in a war with Ukraine, but essentially in a war with the West, uh, with giving weapons to Ukraine. One thing we'll also probably hear in Vladimir Putin's speech tomorrow as well, John. We will be listening. Fred Plykin in Moscow, thank you very much. With me now is Beth Sander, CNN National Security Analyst and former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, and retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. He is also a CNN military analyst. Beth, first to you. Put this into context for us. How, how big of a deal was it for President Biden to make this trip happen? I think it's a big deal. You know, this is the first time in modern history that a U.S. president has gone to a war zone that hasn't been controlled by the U.S. military. So it was a big deal in terms of logistically and taking the risk of going there. But I think symbolically, it is huge. It's huge for two reasons. One, um, this is about solidifying, making sure that the alliance holds together, that the U.S. and our allies keep supporting Ukraine, and he needs to do these bold moves in order to do that. And then secondly, I think it's just this real juxtaposition with us versus Russia, which you and Fred were just talking about. And with Putin's speech tomorrow and Biden's speech tomorrow, we're really starting to see this this kind of firming up of this looking more like a U.S.-Russia war. Colonel Leighton, Beth just talked about the symbolism here. There's also some new military assistance, but as far as we know, it does not include the item at the top of Ukraine's wish list right now, which is fighter jets. Should the U.S. be sending Ukraine fighter jets? Yeah, John, at this point, I think we should. Uh, but uh, we should have had the planning in, in progress on, for doing something like this for many months now. Uh, ideally, we would have done it about two months into this war when we realized that uh, the Ukrainians were going to stand fast and they're going to hold territory and then regain territory. Uh, since we haven't done that, uh, now is as good a time as any to catch up and to provide uh, the training that Ukrainian pilots will need. So in, the short answer is yes uh, to uh, planes like the F-16 and also yes to longer range missiles. So, Beth, we were just talking uh, about the military bloggers inside Russia criticizing Russia for allowing, for lack of a better word, this trip to happen. You were talking about Putin's speech tomorrow also. How do you think all of this might affect Putin's speech? Well, I think he's uh, going through his speech right now or, you know, overnight with a, uh, a red pen, and he's going to make all that language even tougher, even more about this being a fight, um, an existential fight between Russia and the U.S., 
And, you know, and I also expect that there's a high potential that we'll see another kind of missile barrage attacking Kyiv because these folks on his right flank, on Putin's right flank, are really upset. Uh, it was all over the Russian TV today, pictures of Biden and Zelensky hugging and walking around. It's infuriating them. And I think Putin has to show that he is a tough guy. You know, Colonel, to that point, I was in Lviv in Ukraine last March when President Biden was speaking over the border in Poland and Russia conducted airstrikes right before President Biden was set to speak. And you had the sense they did it so that all the cameras that we were using could see their airstrikes. How concerned should the U.S., should Ukraine be that this visit might prompt more Russian aggression? Well, I think they should be quite concerned. I think it's, uh, you know, really very likely, as Beth mentioned, that uh, they will, will start to do something like this. Uh, you know, they, they have a tendency to uh, be very symbolic in their actions and uh, their military actions uh, tend to be more symbolically oriented anyways than ours do. So it uh, becomes, a, I think, a, a clear need and a clear imperative for the Ukrainians to be prepared for something like this and uh, to also prepare their population uh, that uh, these attacks on the infrastructure uh, and other military installations will uh, continue at this point and they'll probably get fairly bad. You know, in terms of international security, one crucial meeting, Beth, today was Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky. But inside Russia, China's top diplomat landed right about the same time in his meeting with Russian officials. And this comes, as Anthony Blinken says, that the U.S. is nervous, scared, or concerned, raised concerns, I should say, that China will provide lethal military aid to Russia. How much of a concern should that be? And what would that do to U.S.-China relations? Well... U.S.-China relations are at a 40-year low already. Um, I think that, you know, right now, the effort by both sides coming out of Bali was to try to, as the Biden administration says, put guardrails on and basically keep the, you know, the wheels from falling off the bus. And I think that that would be just devastating. But, you know, this is a really another bold move by the Biden administration to use intelligence, not just keep it hidden, but to use it in order to constrain the actions of our adversaries. They did it effectively against Russia. And now I think this will be effective against China. I mean, what China is trying to do is have its cake and eat it too. You know, they're trying to square the circle of all these different things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, but but this lays bare their efforts. All right, Beth Sander, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you both very much. Ahead, more than two weeks since the train derailment in Ohio and the controlled burns that followed, is the air and water too dangerous for people who live there? The test results are in. In our national lead, is it safe to breathe the air or drink the water? Those are the questions still plaguing the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, two weeks after that train derailment and controlled burn. Government officials say tests of the public drinking water have repeatedly come back as safe, and officials insist the air is clean. But, as seen as Jason Carroll reports, people are still wary. Empty rooms stand ready for use at the First Church of Christ in East Palestine, Ohio, where starting Tuesday, it will be used as a clinic. We'll be here to help people as long as necessary. 
Here, residents who say they are experiencing adverse health effects can be examined by experts. We've been hearing about people having headaches, uh, rashes and whatnot. Is that what you're hearing as well? Yeah, I, I don't hear a lot of it, but people are having some of those things, and whether it's because of chemicals or because of this time of the year, it's hard to tell. More than two weeks after the Norfolk Southern train derailment and the controlled release of chemicals by the company that followed, residents in East Palestine are increasingly worried about what's in their air, water, and soil. When we think about the chemicals that we know have been released, they are known carcinogens. Vinyl chloride is a carcinogen. Signs of chemicals visible in creeks near the derailment site over the weekend, while in Cincinnati and northern Kentucky on Monday, water officials reopened water intakes from the Ohio River. They shut them down out of an abundance of caution in the anticipated arrival of the last detectable amounts of chemicals from the derailment. Water officials say there have been no detections of the specific chemicals from the train derailment. Meanwhile, back in East Palestine, air quality tests in 530 homes showed no detection of contaminants above safe limits. Officials also say public water is safe, while private well water users should stick with bottled water for now. Despite those guarantees, the toxic chemical spill is still causing an uproar and criticism directed at Norfolk Southern. Everything that's happened here, all the cleanup, all the drilling, all the testing, all the hotel stays, all of that is on Norfolk Southern. The rail company's CEO standing by the decision to conduct a controlled release, saying the burn was the right thing to do. I think we did what we needed to do in order to prevent an uncontrolled explosion. The federal government has deployed medical experts to help assess health concerns. People in this community have been reporting problems such as rashes and nausea. The CDC also confirmed it will send a team to help assess public health needs in the area. But that's not stopping criticism that the Biden administration was slow to respond to the disaster. On Sunday, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg responded with a letter to Norfolk Southern CEO writing, Major derailments in the past have been followed by calls for reform and by vigorous resistance by your industry to increase safety measures. This must change. And as the sounds of trains continue to run through East Palestine, it's a bitter reminder for residents that while Norfolk Southern has resumed operations, Life here, for some, is far from it. And, John, we've just gotten word that EPA Administrator Michael Regan, who was here last week, well, he will be here again tomorrow on Tuesday to meet with both state, local uh, officials, as well as residents here on the ground as well. John? All right, a new effort from the administration. Jason Carroll in East Palestine, Ohio, thank you very much. 98-year-old former President Jimmy Carter entered hospice care at his Georgia home over the weekend, foregoing further medical treatment. Recently, America's oldest living president had undergone a series of short hospital stays. Seen as Eva McKend is in Plains, Georgia, where President Carter was missed yesterday at the Sunday school where he began teaching in the 1980s. The Carters in Plains, Georgia, it's such a close relationship, Eva. 
Yes, John, and he sure was missed. Actually, when you speak to residents here, uh, it is at that Sunday school where they may have interacted with them. Some of them telling me uh, they brought their kids uh, so that they could listen to the former president. I just want to give you a sense of this community of Plains, Georgia, just a few hundred folks living here. Uh, as many folks know, the former president was also a former peanut farmer. And all day long, we have seen uh, peanut trucks coming by here. The factory uh, just off of Main Street here, pretty much peanuts and lumber all we have seen come uh, back and forth down this road and then here is main street and then on the other end of main street you have a train depot and that depot also served as former president carter's campaign headquarters in the 1970s on main street it's just peppered with uh, different cute little uh, stores and shops and in those shops are plenty of uh, carter memorabilia just to give you a sense of how central he is to this community we also met a, a shop owner a woman by the name of benita who owns a soul food restaurant and she's had the opportunity to feed the carters over the years uh, take a listen to what she told us you see this restaurant is plot right in the midst of where the former president grew up at, you know, and for him to come from these humble means to being the 39th president of our United States is just phenomenal. You know, so it just goes to show that it doesn't matter where you come from. It's all about what you desire and where you can go with that desire. So he's a living example to me. So something that we have also heard time and time again is how central his faith was. Uh, we mentioned Sunday school at the top. A lot of folks uh, telling me here in this community that they are believers. It is their faith, uh, John, that is getting them through uh, this tough period. Uh, we also met a man. He's actually a mail carrier and a painter, works six days a week, so has put off uh, one of his key jobs, which is routinely uh, painting the peanut that is right in uh, the the edge of town here. That peanut was a key feature during President Carter's uh, campaign in 1976. Uh, he said he's been putting off, it off a long while, but he just could put it off no more when he heard the news uh, that Carter is in hospice care. John. Hmm. You know, a town and one family, even McKendon Plains, Georgia, thank you very much. Ahead, treating a child with a fever, why parents may want to hold off on the doses to help bring that temperature down. The expert advice from pediatricians, next. In our health lead, a new poll shows that one in three parents would give their children fever-reducing medicine once signs, once signs of a fever arise. But pediatricians warn unnecessary usage might mask the pain of what's actually going on. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. First, Elizabeth, tell us more about this poll. John, this is an interesting poll done by the folks at Mott Children's Hospital in Michigan. Basically, what it found is that a lot of parents are thinking kind of by definition or maybe thinking by definition, if my child has a fever, even if it's low grade, I need to give the medication. And that is not the case. Let's take a look at advice from the American Academy of Pediatrics. What they say, and this is for children over six months old, there's sort of different rules for the little ones, that they say you probably do not need to be treating a fever unless the child is uncomfortable. So if your child has a fever, especially a low-grade fever, but they seem okay, which sometimes happens, then you don't need to treat them. So, for example, if they're playing and eating and drinking and sleep, sleeping normally, 
then you don't need to treat them. That's what the American Academy of Pediatrics says. So in other words, having a fever by definition does not mean that you need to give them medications. John? Because that's the question that I have as a parent who once had little kids. I mean, what are you supposed to do if it starts going up the temperature? Right. So there, I'm going to give you first a couple of don'ts because there are some old fashioned notions about what you're supposed to do with a child with a fever. And you definitely don't want to be doing these things. You do not want to be giving them aspirin. That can actually make them even more sick. You don't want to be sort of dousing them with cold water or rubbing alcohol. Those are all bad ideas. You do want to make sure they stay hydrated. For example, pediatricians will tell parents of babies, count the diapers. Um, you want to have a certain number of wet diapers. Hydration is so, so important important with a feverish child. And then if you are going to use ibuprofen or, or acetaminophen like Advil or Tylenol or different words for that, then you want to make sure that you're giving the proper dosage. It's very different depending upon the size of the child. So go by size, not by age. Follow the charts that are on the, the labels for the medicines. John? Size, not by age. That's an interesting distinction there. But I mean, are we talking young, young kids? You said post six months all the way till what, theoretically? Right. So actually, I think it goes up until about 12 years old. Now, there are some 12 year olds who are quite large. And so then that dosing would be more like an adult. But you want to look on there because there are, you know, five year olds who weigh more like an eight year old and eight year olds who weigh more like six year olds. So you want to be looking at the at the size, at the pounds. That's what matters. All right. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you very much for explaining all of that. Up next, how Putin's war in Ukraine has Russian families on the run and ending up in the United States. One family's complex journey with babies in tow. That's next. In our world lead, since Russian President Vladimir Putin imposed a military draft last September, a staggering number of Russians has been trying to seek asylum in the United States. Look at this from Customs and Border Protection. At the peak in December... Nearly 8,000 Russian migrants showed up along the U.S.-Mexico border. That's a stark contrast from the time before Putin's order. CNN's Rosa Flores caught up with one Russian family who made that daring journey. Michael and Nellie Manzarin loved life in Russia with their two boys, Mark and Philip. Life was good. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. But their world turned upside down last September when Vladimir Putin declared the first draft since World War II, drafting men Michael's age. I don't want to kill innocent people of Ukraine. They're protecting their territories. They're protecting their homes. Michael thought about his own family. I was afraid for my boys. I was afraid for my family. Was that your biggest fear? Oh, yeah, one of, one of my biggest fears, of course. <laughs> At the time, fear spread quickly in Russia. Wives and mothers wailed as their loved ones were forced to go to war, and thousands of Russians fled to neighboring countries to avoid the draft. The backup at the Russian border seemed endless. Turns out, many of them were headed to America. In fact, the number of Russians encountered at the U.S. southern border has nearly tripled since Putin imposed the draft. From about 1,600 Russians in August 2022, the month before the draft, to more than 4,500 in January 2023. So this is Russia. This is the bus station. Fearing Michael could be drafted at any moment, the Manzarin separated. Uh, praise God, it was just temporary. Michael left Russia first to Kazakhstan by bus. A week later... Are you 
And here is Nelly in the bus. Nelly and the boys joined him. <laughs> My favorite moment. Mark was so happy to see me. He was crying. And they traveled by train to Uzbekistan. This is Uzbekistan, Cherchik. Where they slept on the floor of an apartment they shared with friends for more than a month. But they were nervous, because Uzbekistan is a post-Soviet country that can be friendly to Russia. Then they learned some of their Russian friends were entering the U.S. They crossed the border uh, from Mexico to the United States. It happened to one family, then to another family, and we started to pray. In late November, with guidance from a U.S. nonprofit organization, the Manzarins arrived to Reynosa, Mexico. This is the video of our apartment. Which is across the border from South Texas. There, Michael says, up to 700 Russians were waiting for their own chance to enter the U.S. legally. All the people that were there, they were against the war. That was the reason why they left Russia. This is the day when we crossed the border. In January, after 40 days of waiting there, the Manzarins say U.S. immigration authorities allowed them to enter the U.S. legally under something called humanitarian parole, which allows them to seek asylum while in the U.S. Gracious God, we thank you. Their first weeks in America, they were hosted by pastors like this family in Austin, Texas, where Nellie celebrated her 27th birthday. And the entire family celebrated being free and safe together. The Mandarins are in Washington state. They are settling into a Russian-speaking Christian community, and they plan to seek asylum here in the United States. But their future here is uncertain. As you know, it will be up to an immigration judge to determine whether that asylum is granted or denied. And, John, they tell me that their biggest fear right now is getting deported because, as you saw in that story, Michael Manzarin has spoken against the war. He fled because of the draft, and they fear the worst if they do get deported back to Russia. John. What a journey. Rosa Flores, thank you very much. The alarming threat today from Kim Jong-un's sister as North Korea fires off a new round of missile launches today. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper. In this hour, there are just not enough hands. How virtual reality is being used to help alleviate a huge shortage in one job field. Plus, an arrest made in the killing of a Catholic bishop in his own house. What we're learning about the suspect and a possible motive. In leading this hour, moments ago, President Biden returned to Poland after his unannounced visit to Ukraine. Early this morning, President Joe Biden appeared with President Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. This visit comes almost one year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. During his remarks, President Biden took aim at Russian President Vladimir Putin, saying his conquest of Ukraine has failed. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in Kyiv with more on this historic, unannounced, in many ways unprecedented trip that Zelensky says brought Ukraine, quote, closer to victory. As if on cue, the ever-present air raid sirens, warning of potential danger, cutting through the crisp Kyiv morning. The U.S. and Ukrainian presidents, seemingly undeterred, in lockstep in a historic show of unity together briefly visiting St. Michael's Church before emerging to lay a pair of wreaths. The Ukrainian and American flags 
in front of a wall of portraits of soldiers who died in the fight with Russia. Biden keen to remind Russian President Vladimir Putin of his failures in the past year. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us, not sticking together. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. While Zelensky called the moment the most important in the history of the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. This is the visit in this most difficult period for Ukraine when Ukraine is fighting for our own liberty. Today, our negotiations were very fruitful. They were very important and crucial. Negotiations about continued military aid. Today, President Biden announcing an almost half-billion-dollar aid package for Ukraine including ammunition, howitzers, and air defenses. But big-ticket items that Ukraine wants, like longer-range missiles and fighter jets, still up for discussion. This conversation brings us closer to victory. This surprise, unprecedented visit on the eve of a bloody anniversary. Extreme secrecy shrouding Biden's journey. No word, but there were signs. Deserted streets and a heavy police presence suggesting a prominent arrival. Morning, President Biden quietly left Washington for Poland just after 4 a.m. under the cover of darkness and after a long train ride across western Ukraine, arrived to warm smiles and laughter from Ukraine's first couple. His feelings left in a handwritten message about solidarity and friendship which was echoed on the streets of Kyiv. It is support for us and a message for the Russians that this issue must be resolved and Ukraine must win. We hope that his visit will speed up the events. And John, the White House says that they warned the Kremlin that Biden would be on the ground today for what they call deconfliction purposes so that the Russians wouldn't do anything while he was here. Now, that was hotly debated in Moscow today with some hardliners criticizing President Vladimir Putin for allowing Biden to come here to meet with Zelensky. We did hear from former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, who has become something of a belligerent hardliner. He did acknowledge that they knew Biden was on the ground today. He then went on to accuse NATO of earning money and stealing weapons to sell to terrorists around the world. Now, we have not heard directly from President Putin since uh, Biden's visit. We are expecting to hear much more from Putin tomorrow. He is due to give a big speech not long before President Biden does the same thing in Warsaw. John. All right, Alex Marquardt in Kiev for us. Alex, thank you for that report. With me now, CNN's Caitlin Collins and Phil Mattingly. They are in Warsaw in nearby Poland. And CNN's Nick Robertson is with us from London. Caitlin, a top National Security Council official told you this morning this trip was a, quote, calculated risk. So talk to us about the logistics and security that it took for President Biden's team to get him in there safely to an active war zone. Yeah, there was a lot. You have not seen a U.S. president go into an active war zone where there are no U.S. forces uh, at any time in recent memory. And there were a lot of deliberations that went behind this, we were told. But in the end, they basically decided the message that they would be sending by having Biden go into Ukraine was worth the risk that he was taking by going into Ukraine. And so... They had this plane that left in the middle of the night in Washington. The blinds were pulled down as he was traveling and flying over. The reporters, there were only two of them, one photographer, one print reporter on the plane. They had their phones confiscated and taken from them during basically the entirety of this trip, obviously to keep it under wraps. And President Biden himself only taking a small contingent of aides with him. Typically, as you know, John, he travels 
with a big footprint, but they tried to keep it incredibly small as they flew to Poland. And then in Poland is where he boarded the train for that 10-hour ride into Ukraine, of course, into Kyiv. You cannot fly into Kyiv. You haven't seen any other world leaders do that. And so they took this 10-hour journey in the middle of the night with reporters in different cabins than President Biden as they made a few stops to pick up more security. But that is all what led up to that trip that you've seen, these remarkable images of President Biden and President Zelensky meeting. But it is something that the White House said uh, he had wanted to do for some time, but only now did did they decide it was a manageable risk where he could make this visit. And Nick, clearly there are different audiences that the White House was directing this trip to be seen by them. And U.S. European partners, almost definitely one of them. So how is this trip being seen by them? Um, this has been seen very positively, a real commitment by the president of the United States. Obviously, the vice president was at the Munich Security Conference with a very tough message against Russia uh, and, and being a pillar of support, leading the way, leading the other allies to continue the military, continue the economic, continue the humanitarian support for Ukraine. So this is a big deal. We've heard comments from German officials supporting it. Um, this comes at a moment where um, there is a need for unity. There is strong unity um, in the alliance at the moment. But there are little areas and little ways that it is fraying. And it took the United States, after all, to commit tanks before Germany and many other nations would and some are still to step up with tanks as well. So this is important. When the president of the United States does something demonstrably courageous, demonstrably big, that's a message. And it's heard and understood here. So, Phil, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that President Biden and Zelensky, the talks were hyper-focused on the next few months of fighting, calling it, quote, a critical juncture. So is there any indication that air support was discussed as part of this, given Ukraine's persistent call for U.S. fighter jets? Yeah, John, I think it's implicit in how the, this was framed by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that that's exactly what was discussed. And U.S. officials did not go into this meeting. The president did not go into this meeting unaware of what President Zelensky has asked for, about of what Ukrainians have requested repeatedly over the course of the last several months. And I am told that long-range missile systems and fighter jets were brought up and discussed, both sides laying out their particular perspectives. No red lines were drawn, I am told, but those perspectives were consistent with where they have been up to this point, which has been the president repeatedly saying no when asked about fighter jets, long-range missile systems being rebuffed out of concern about what it would mean for escalatory uh, issues with Russia. One thing I would note, though, there has been a very clear evolution over the course of the last 361 days of what the Ukrainians have asked for. The U.S. and its allies have said no, not an option. And then at some point have slowly over the course of time shifted towards yes and then delivery or training. Uh, so that is an evolution that has transpired. That is an evolution that is certainly expected to continue, whether or not it will continue on fighters and on these long range missile systems. That's still up in the air, John. Yeah, one of those weapon systems that it was a no until it was a yes were tanks, Nick. And you were with Ukrainian troops in Poland as they were getting trained in these German-made Leopard 2 tanks last week. So the tank issue, though, is settled. They are on the way in. What are European leaders and European capitals, what are they saying about the idea of air support, fighter jets? 
I think the consensus is that this is something that's on the table. The British have already committed to training Ukrainians on fighter jets. There's a consensus that you need to control the airspace. You need to have a strong air defense system in place in Ukraine. Otherwise, you're going to lose some of these fighter jets in the skies. There's no point in that. Also, the consensus seems to be around there is so much else to give Ukraine that's important. You need to um, coalesce, organize, and get that in in a constructive way. And that is the tanks. That is the spare parts for the tanks, the mechanics for the tanks, the ammunition for the tanks. And it's, and it's proving not to be easy uh, to, to organize. So uh, the fighter jets seem to be waiting for another day. Having spoken at the Munich Security Conference to some of the military uh, the former generals on the scene there, they seem pretty clear that these longer range missile systems are going to come and they're absolutely needed for the next phase of the war, which is more, if, if the Ukrainians can pull it off, more a, a shock and awe style that sends a clear message to the mm. Kremlin. Nick, Phil, Caitlin Collins, we will see you in the morning. Thank you all very much. Joining me now is Congressman Mike Quigley, a Democrat from Illinois. He's also the co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus. Congressman, you went to Ukraine this summer and met with President Zelensky. Did the White House reach out to you or other members of Congress that have been there to help plan this trip, or were you as surprised as everyone? I was surprised as anyone, and that's the way it should be. The fewer people who know, the safer the visit. So you said, quote, you're not against sending these U.S. F-16 fighters to Kiev. We were just talking about that. You say, quote, you can't half-ass a war. So does this need to happen quickly? Because one of the complaints you hear from Zelensky is, you know, you say no to everything, but eventually you come around. So why not just say yes when we ask? Well, I don't I didn't mean to imply putting those together that not sending those jets was half-assing it. It was you need to give them everything that will help them win the war. And as President Zelensky said, help us win quickly. It's hard to keep the coalitions together. And again, your previous guest was right. Uh, what were once vices are now habits. Everything that we are sending was once viewed as escalatory. At the very least, I ask that we get these things ready. Uh, the Abrams tanks were a no, no, no. And now it's probably what? It's unclear, but they probably won't get our tanks till the end of this year. But they'll get the German tanks possibly in March. So and if we're talking about sending them longer range missile systems, and that's what I was talking about, the full range uh, and the possibility of jets. You know, I'm no expert in this, but my suggestion is we have to give them what will help them win quickly and at least get ready to send these things because of the long lag time of training and uh, reconditioning. So President Biden's trip today did prompt some criticism from Republicans who have questioned some U.S. aid to Ukraine. I want you to listen to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who may very well end up running for president. Uh, he uh reiterated the call for no blank checks to Ukraine. And I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China, getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So what do you think of that? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a Florida governor with zero foreign policy experience uh, making a campaign gesture. And look, I hear about the 11 Republicans on the far, far right extreme having a resolution to cut off all funding. I think it's more valuable and instructive to listen to uh, Republicans who are in positions of authority, Chairman Turner, Chairman McCall, 
Senator Mitch McConnell talking about ongoing support uh, for this war effort. I think they have far more sway. My only concern with the extremes now is that they seem to have disproportionate influence over the current Speaker of the House. So officials told CNN this weekend that the U.S. recently started seeing, quote, disturbing trends, and there are signs that China wants to creep up to the line, that's a quote, of providing lethal military aid to Russia without getting caught. So how serious would that be in your mind, and how should the U.S. respond? It's extraordinarily serious, and, and I don't think there's any creeping up to the line in, in modern warfare. Uh, there's a way to find out anything like this. It is disturbing, and it's also somewhat contradictory. What is China doing? Is it trying to normalize relations with the U.S., with the two presidents meeting, and, of course, Secretary Blinken, Blinken meeting with his counterpart? And then you shoot a balloon right down Main Street that obviously isn't going to be hidden from anyone. Uh, and then, you know, this word of the possibility of sending lethal weaponry uh, to the Ukraine conflict. This, of course, would be met with extraordinary, an extraordinary reaction by the U.S. I'd like to think that the fact that it's become public will further uh, discourage them from any such action. So lastly, tomorrow there are dueling speeches. Russian President Vladimir Putin will give a, a big address to his people. That happens just before President Biden gives a speech planned in Poland. What will you be listening for from Vladimir Putin? I think what you're going to hear from Putin is he's going to be addressing uh, the Russian public. But I think what he's really doing is speaking to his far right ultra nationalist. I think he's far more concerned about the fact that the war is going poorly uh, in their view of that than he is with the Russian public, which he treats as cannon fodder, putting them in there ill-trained, ill-equipped, as just seemingly uncaring about Russian lives. So I think what you're going to hear tomorrow is President Putin speaking to the far right, the people who could pose a risk to him. Democratic Congressman Mike Quigley, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Coming up, we're live on the ground in Turkey, where the death toll is rising from a powerful aftershock. Then keeping it all in the family in North Korea, Kim Jong-un's sister issues a warning to the United States and South Korea. That's next. Back now with our world lead. At least three people are dead, hundreds more injured after a strong aftershock rattled southern Turkey this afternoon. It comes just two weeks after that huge earthquake killed more than 41,000 people in the region. CNN's Jamana Karacha is in Antakya, Turkey. Jamana, uh, what do we know about the damage from this aftershock? Well, John, as you mentioned there, the uh, this aftershock is 6.3, striking here in Hatay province, where we are at least three people confirmed killed, according to Turkish officials. More than 200 are being treated in hospitals. And what you also have is several of these search and rescue operations that are ongoing uh, in different areas. In this one location, John, where we are, they believe that there are three people who are trapped inside. One person was rescued earlier on. This operation has been ongoing with different Turkish emergency services agencies taking part in this search and rescue operation that has been going on now for about five hours trying to locate those three individuals who are inside. They don't know right now if they are uh, still alive. And, uh, you know, John, when this 
earthquake, this uh, aftershock struck tonight, we have seen so many people terrified because as you can imagine, it's been two weeks since that massive 7.8 earthquake and people still are traumatized by that. People are still trying to comprehend what has happened to them, what has happened to their loved ones. People who are still searching for the bodies of their loved ones who are still trying to mourn their loved ones and now they have to deal with this. People are feeling that they have been traumatized once again. Uh, by this. And John, over the past couple of weeks, we've been to areas in the earthquake zone that have been barely touched by that massive earthquake, but where you still find people who are scarred by what they have been through. They've all come to witness a sight so extraordinary. Some would even say terrifying. The monstrous 7.8 magnitude earthquake split the land in the village of Tepehan in two. An olive grove now divided by this new canyon roughly 130 feet deep and more than 900 feet long. This area lies on the eastern Anatolian fault line that shook Turkey, and you can see how powerful it was. Geologists we've spoken to say that this is not unusual. They describe this as rock mass failure, but they say that this is not something they have seen in their lifetime. These men from a nearby village tell us everyone is scared. They all now sleep outside. No one was hurt in this village in the mountains, only a short drive from the devastated city of Antakya. Here, like many other villages in the area, the damage is also limited. But its impact has been overwhelming. I thought it was the apocalypse. The sky ruptured, the ground cracked. You have nowhere to run, Ilhan tells us. I have grandchildren. I hug them and I think if we're going to die, we should be together. Ilhan and his family, more than 40, he says, have been living out here under this makeshift tarp shelter. They need a tent, he tells us, but no tents or aid have made it to this village. There are too many hard-hit areas in need of urgent aid in one massive earthquake zone. And getting that aid out is a Herculean effort. Injerlik Air Base has become an around-the-clock hub for these aid deliveries. These Turkish, American and Polish troops work together to get basic and life-saving supplies out. Choppers here are constantly on the go. This chopper has just been dispatched to the outskirts of the city of Antakya. They're carrying baby food, warm children's clothes, blankets, tents and much more of this desperately needed aid. It's a quick landing here. People have to rush to grab what they've been waiting for for days. Our house collapsed and we had no tents, this man says. I lost eight nephews. We asked for a tent, food and underwear. God bless you. You've made us so happy. Help can't come soon enough for those who lost everything, left with nothing in an instant. And John, tonight we met so many families who have been made homeless by that massive earthquake. Tonight, they're still out on the streets, sleeping on the streets, makeshift shelters, in tents, in their cars. And you can just imagine the kind of horror that they are going through mm. right now. Just so much need. Jamana Karaja in Antakya in Turkey. Jamana, stay safe. Thank you so much. Also in our world lead, North Korea launched two ballistic missiles earlier this morning. This is the second test in three days. And now dictator Kim Jong-un's sister is warning of more to come unless the U.S. and South Korea stop holding joint military drills. 
CNN's Will Ripley joins me now live. So, Will, is this the kind of threat the U.S. would take seriously? Oh, absolutely, especially because the first launch that we saw on Saturday was an intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-15, that flew thousands of miles up into space and then barreled back down into the waters near Japan. This is the kind of missile that theoretically could hit any city in the mainland U.S., which is why the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is calling these actions destabilizing, even though these tests, they say, did not pose a direct threat to U.S. troops and other personnel in the region. Now, the big concern, as far as North Korea goes, is that they are mass producing these ICBMs, these intercontinental ballistic missiles. In fact, they displayed them at a military parade just last week. A lot of the attention was focused on Kim Jong-un, who was standing there with his nine-year-old daughter, who a lot of people believe might be being groomed right now as a possible successor. It seems pretty early in the, that process, uh, but it is raising speculation about why is Kim so urgently putting his daughter front and center and also ordering so many missiles to be produced and perhaps testing them, even testing them at not a highly lofted trajectory that goes far up, but a normal trajectory where the missile could actually fly over a much larger section of the earth, perhaps crossing over places like Japan and maybe even other countries, John. So, Will, in response to today's test, Japan's prime minister is pushing for an emergency U.N. Security Council meeting. What kind of response might a meeting like that result in? Well, in terms of the response from North Korea, nothing can anger them more than either United Nations actions or uh, military drills, joint military drills. And the United States uh, actually conducted some joint exercises uh, with South Korea and Japan in response to this latest launch. And they have boots on the ground military drills for the Korean Peninsula next month. As for inside the U.N. Security Council, of course, a lot of the members uh, are putting out statements, including the United States, condemning this launch. But the problem is, John, uh, the permanent members of Russia and China both have veto power, which has made the council essentially unable to do anything to punish North Korea uh, for all of these missile launches, including 37 last year. All right. Will Ripley for us. Thank you, Will, as always. Coming up, why some conservatives are worried that Florida's Republican governor and potential 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis may have gone too far in his culture war fight. Florida is the state where woke goes to die. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has become a national figure and leading potential candidate for the Republican presidential nomination by diving into some of the most controversial culture war issues, including, you just heard it there, his fight against so-called wokeness. But there's growing concern from some Republican supporters of DeSantis that he's overstepped in some ways in this fight. Since Steve Paterno is live in St. Petersburg, Florida. And Steve, what are you hearing exactly from Republicans about this? John, there are basically two camps of Republicans we talked to, and that there's, you know, sort of the free market conservatives who are looking to turn the, the page from Trump, and they're finding that they are troubled with DeSantis having some of the same tendencies as Trump and using sort of his government power to to push his ideology on public institutions, on, on higher education, and even on businesses. And that has given them some reason to pause about DeSantis being an alternative to Trump. But we've also heard from people in DeSantis's corner, some people who would be supporters of him, who are saying that they are concerned that these actions are flying too close to the sun and his war on woke 
uh, is not going to might not play out well in a general election in 2024. Uh, and some of this concern has come from people who have been pretty big backers of him, including from Ken Griffin. He is a, a hedge fund owner who has given more than $10 million to DeSantis over the years. Last year, he was very critical of DeSantis for penalizing Disney, saying uh, at one point, quote, I don't appreciate Governor DeSantis going after Disney's tax status. It can be portrayed or feel like retaliation. And I believe that the people who serve our nation need to rise above these moments in time in their conduct and behavior. Now, Ken Griffin went on to say later in the year that he thinks Governor DeSantis has a, quote, tremendous record. Uh, so he hasn't necessarily lost a lot of support yet. But we are seeing some Republican governors draw some strong and stark uh, con um, uh, differences with the governor over his handling of, of, of business and, and punishing people. Uh, here's what a couple of them, uh, Governor uh, Sununu and former Governor Larry Hogan, had to say about DeSantis. For others out there that think that the government should be penalizing your business because they disagree with you politically, that isn't very conservative. And to me, it sounds like big government and uh, authoritarian. Uh, you, you have to agree with me, and I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do. Yeah, now, John, some of these criticisms sound a lot like what people were saying about Trump in 2016. The difference is DeSantis was supposed to be a candidate that a lot of people were hoping would give him an opportunity to move on from sort of the Trump era policies. And instead, they're finding that he is kind of adopting many of his tactics. All right, Steve Cogerno, thank you very much. I want to bring in former Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York, along with former Trump White House Communications Director Alyssa Farah Griffin. Alyssa, you know, it's kind of an intellectual heady argument here saying that Ron DeSantis is using the government. It's sort of a big government way he is attacking different things here. Some Republican leaders and insiders are criticizing that. Are you hearing any discomfort among actual Republican voters? So here's the thing. Ron DeSantis is masterful at commanding national media attention and culture war stunts and leaning into the anti-wokeness gets him talked about. It raises his name ID and it, it riles up the base. There are people like me more in the Sununu, Larry Hogan camp, longtime lifelong conservatives who see it as government overreach, masked as conservatism, whether it's going after Disney, whether it's dictating from the state what local schools should teach rather than that being at the school board level or decided by parents. Um, I I do think, however, this is the Trump MAGA party. And I think that the party is more in line with where Ron DeSantis is than the more traditional conservative party that I grew up in. Um, but I think we're going to hash that out. I think it's possible Sununu gets in the race. I would love to see him make that intellectual case. Larry Hogan, someone who can do it very well as well. And I'm curious to see where Nikki Haley comes down on this line, because it really is big government conservatism versus traditional small government. Congressman, you've been asked to weigh in, I'm sure, countless times on Republican primary potentials here. No, uh, what do you think of the big government argument? Do you think that would stick on DeSantis? I think, I think it does. I think more realistically, people are just appalled in the general election by some of the things that he's doing. I mean, you know, he's leaning into the culture wars. It's a general election. I'm saying, though, in a, in a primary. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a primary, look, it, it may well serve him, but I think that trying to out-Trump Donald Trump so long as he remains in the race and it's a crowded field is not going to inure to his benefit. He's going to have folks like, he in fact already has people like Nikki Haley in this race. Other people like Tim Scott are expected to get in. And so I don't think he's going to peel away the 30 to 40 percent in a Republican primary of people who are always going to be with Donald Trump by leaning in 
to these culture war issues that, again, have been resolved. I mean, we're talking about gay rights and, like, whether you'll teach black history. All of these things are very controversial. Let's hear from Donald Trump. Hang on, because I want you to weigh on that, too, Alyssa. Trump was writing this weekend at a social media platform about DeSantis, clearly going after DeSantis, saying DeSantis wants to cut Social Security and Medicare, loves losers like Jeb Bush and Paul Ryan and Karl Rove. Those are his words. Uh, And getting clobbered in the polls by me. DeSantis is a rhino who's trying to hide his past. Not sure if this line of attack works. However, Trump is doing something smart in this moment. I'll give him this, which is he's using his truth social platform, which is really the base of the base that's even reading this and paying attention to try to draw doubt and draw out, draw out that, you know, Ron DeSantis is really a rhino. He's not who you think he is. Um, I'd expect him to go after him on COVID response. He's talked about, you know, closing of beaches support for Ukraine, different things that are these wedge issues that really rally the base of the base. But one quick thing I want to say is Ron DeSantis actually has a great general election thing he can run on. I mean, Florida is getting more people moving from other parts of the country than any state, a thriving economy, a strong tax situation. But instead, he's doing things that I would think independents will be running away from were he to get the nomination. Congressman, you can now jump in on the general election (laughs) argument that I cut you off on rudely before. Thing I care very much about. (laughs) Because because there was a Republican that that, that Steve and the others uh, at CNN who did this story uh, quoted to them, gave them a quote saying that their concern that DeSantis and his war against wokeness and his war against this African-American studies course uh, in Florida, they worry he's being perceived as racially insensitive. It's not a good place for him to be in the long term. Yeah, look, I think he wouldn't be the first person to sort of use some divisions that tend to fall along racial lines in our country to gen up the base. The problem is that he's so explicit that it doesn't leave any room to the imagination about what precisely he's, he's trying to do. And I, I just, having represented a, a lot of moderate to, to conservative white suburban voters in, in the Hudson Valley in New York, for example, I know that, that this is not something that is acceptable to them. I mean, you know, we can talk about economic issues and there are real policy differences between Democrats and Republicans. There are some legitimate policy issues, uh, disagreements on social issues. But, but things as fundamental as whether you'll teach the history of this country, uh, you know, th- whether, whether you can say the word gay or teach, you know, the elementary school students and others about the, LG- this, the mere existence of the LGBTQ community is something that I think most people really um, are, are concerned that he's trying to prevent them from, from doing. You know who we should hear from in this discussion? Ron DeSantis. Uh, we have some sound of him where he's responding to these Republicans, the Larry Hogan's, uh, the Chris Sununu's, and others of the world who have been talking about him. Let's listen. When you're out there leading, when you're out there setting the agenda, not just for Florida, but really for the nation, which we've done over the last few years, uh, people see that, and, and the people that, that don't necessarily like that uh, are going to respond accordingly. But uh, I can just tell you, uh, if people are not firing at me, then I must not be doing my job. And so I view it really as positive feedback. This is just the beginning. How do you think he will stand up against, you know, criticism that will get white hot? I would just note Larry Hogan left with one of the highest rankings um, across the board of governors in a a blue state um, as a Republican governor. Chris Sununu, a purple state, the second highest approval rating of any governor in the country. So I think they're doing just fine as far as their leadership. Um, He's going to have to address Donald Trump. Um, Listen, he he doesn't benefit anything by, you know, punching down because at this point those politicians are pulling lower than he is. Um, For now, he's going to need to take Trump on directly. And I think just trying to out extreme him and cater the most to the right and not even traditional conservatism isn't benefiting him. Can I bring up something that crossed social media today that I think needs discussion on this President's Day? Because Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene wrote on Twitter today, quote, 
we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. She also added, everyone I talk to says this. Congressman, this is a member of Congress talking about secession, talking about splitting the country in half. She's talking about a second civil war is, is what she's I mean, this is there's not going to be a voluntary secession. The last time this was attempted, we got the civil war, war right? And thank God for a president like Abraham Lincoln at the time. Um, this is really strange. Um, and and it, it's still not getting, I think, the kind of attention that it ought. She serves on the Homeland Security Committee, thanks to Kevin McCarthy. There will be no repercussions for her. Uh, and to be sure, there are plenty of her colleagues in the House Republican Caucus who agree with her sentiments, but don't go as far as like saying it on Twitter. How often is she going to be asked to apologize for saying crazy things like this before she is finally expelled from Congress? It won't happen under Kevin McCarthy's leadership, unfortunately, because people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are actually quite influential, not just in that caucus, but in today's Republican Party. Well, and, and it's it's important that you say it, it is scary. Like, it's easy to laugh off a lot of her more extreme comments, but there's only one way you get to a mass secession, a national divorce, and that is through violence. And I would just note some of these far-right members who are the first to wrap themselves in the American flag and say they believe in the Constitution seem utterly unfamiliar with the U.S. Constitution. Um, we, you know, we, we are 50 states united. This is absurd, the fact that an elected member of Congress is even saying it. And the speaker's not going to say anything about it. Uh, happy President's Day. <laughs> Uh, to both of you, Liz Fair Griffin, uh, Congressman Monier Jones. Great to see both of you. Thank Likewise. you. Thank you very much. A Catholic bishop shot and killed inside his Los Angeles home. Police just made an arrest. We have new details next. International lead, another disturbing incident at Rich Neck Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia. A fifth grade student texted classmates over the weekend a threat to, quote, pop some bullets and tell someone to shoot up the class. This is according to school officials who had a classmate in the group in, the, in that group text reported the threat to his parents. This comes just weeks after a first grade teacher at this same school was shot by a six-year-old boy. Richneck Elementary says the fifth grader who made the threat will not be allowed to return to school while the investigation is underway. International lead, a man has been arrested in connection with the fatal shooting of a, of a beloved Los Angeles Catholic bishop Police found 69-year-old Bishop David O'Connell shot to death inside his home on Saturday, leaving the community he served for decades in shock. Here's CNN's Camila Bernal. The Los Angeles Catholic community mourning the loss of Bishop David O'Connell. The bishop, who spent 45 years working in Los Angeles, was shot and killed in his home Saturday afternoon. He's just a beautiful human being. It's just hard to believe anybody would even consider hurting him in any way. Deputies responded to an emergency call around 1 p.m. and found O'Connell had been shot. A man has now been arrested in connection to the case, but authorities have not released any details about the suspect in the crime that has shocked the community. It's just heartbreaking to see what happened to him. I'm brokenhearted. I've been crying for the last two days knowing that he's no longer here to share all of his inspiration and his prayers and everything with us. The Los Angeles Archbishop, Jose Gomez, describing O'Connell as a man of deep prayer. O'Connell, who was from Ireland, is also being remembered for his love for the poor and the immigrant community and his humor. Okay, they told me that I haven't changed a bit since 1984. 
I said, I didn't know I looked so bad in 1984. <laughs> the Archbishop now asking for prayers for O'Connell, his family, and for law enforcement as they continue the investigation. Now I know that he's in the presence of God praying for all of us, for peace. We need peace. And the Catholic community here in Los Angeles continuing to honor and remember the bishop. They held a prayer service yesterday, and church leaders are asking people to continue praying. In terms of the investigation, we are expecting to learn more within the next 15 minutes. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department holding a press conference. Of course, the biggest questions here are who did this and exactly why. The motive, of course, being one of those big questions for authorities, John. And that press conference coming soon. Camilla, please keep us posted. Thank you very much. Thank you. Helping hands needed. One program is turning to virtual reality to try to fill a nationwide mechanic shortage. In our money lead, as part of the labor shortage in the United States, there aren't enough hands to do all the repair work that's needed. Trade groups say the nationwide shortage of mechanics will cost you time and money. But there is at least one program with an unconventional solution to this real-world problem. As seen as Pete Montine reports, this program is reaching out to people in prison and using new technology to train them to be mechanics. It is the newest fix for a vocation in short supply. Virtual reality. She is replacing the tire. Here at Maryland nonprofit Vehicles for Change, the first tool trainee mechanics use is a pair of Oculus VR goggles. The simulated shop floor has it all, from the lift to the quintessential impact wrench. It's going to expedite the process of getting folks entry-level ready to come into the garages. The latest industry forecast says retirements from dealerships and repair shops will rise nationwide. There are 76,000 new openings for trained auto technicians each year, but 37,000 of those jobs go unfilled. We did a search the other day, and indeed, just in the state of Maryland, for auto technicians locally, and it was over 2,600 technicians. That's a lot. That's a lot. After a little bit of instruction, I was ready to give it a try. Is my hair okay? Lesson one, changing the oil. The cool thing about this is you can move around the shop, but also interact with the world around you. I'm taking the controller and grabbing the lift handle here and moving it up, and up goes the car. The VR is really, as you saw, almost as real as you can get without having your hands on a car. Martin Schwartz came up with this idea to supplement his charity. It's given out 7,500 donated cars to low-income families. But it's also his mechanics getting a second chance. The shop here is an internship for prisoners re-entering society. It's a field that is a little bit more lenient and is willing to hire people with a criminal background. And you can make quite a living. Terrence Grandy says his life was the streets of Baltimore's drug trade. Now he's putting cars back on the street. For someone that's incarcerated that comes home to a stable financial situation, that enables them not to go back to do the same thing that led them in prison. The goal here is to spread this technology across the country, even teaching prisoners still behind bars. Marcus Butler started his virtual reality training as part of a work release program. He is days away from the end of his prison sentence and the start of a new career. I have a, a trade, a skill that is with me. I learned it. I know it. And no matter where I go, it's always cars. It's cars everywhere. So I always have a job. Pete Muntean, CNN, Washington.
a remarkable program. And our thanks to Pete Muntean for that reporting. Moments ago, President Biden arrived back in Warsaw in Poland, where he will deliver a speech tomorrow as Ukraine nears one year after the Russian invasion. Thanks so much for watching this President's Day. Ahead in the Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer will speak with senior White House official John Kirby. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.